0: Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Hi friends, welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. I am your host, Ian Andrews, joined today by Emily and Megan, and we are going to institute a little bit of a different of a different thing today. <laughs> I am on the road at my old alma mater, Hillsdale College, and have been talking pretty well nonstop for almost two solid weeks. And I'm a little, I'm a little sick, and I'm a little tired, and I, th- <laughs> I think I'm going to hand hosting duties over for the day to Emily and Megan and just sort of be a participant along with the rest of you readers. So you two, thank you, and take it away.
1: Well, we are delighted. Emily and I are co-teachers all year long in the school year, and so this is going to be a classic Emily and <laughs> Megan mess around. <laughs> And what a what a section, what a section for us to get to sport around in. This is yeah, like I'm payoff kidding. time in our novel, you guys. We have two sections that we're going to go through today. One has to do with Javert and his uh, coming to grips with the realization that he may not be as perfect as he thought. Uh. And the other is a focus on Marius coming back into the fold of his family and realizing the true nature of his relationship with his grandfather. So those are the Yay. two sections that we have to talk about today.
2: Bad news, good news. I yeah, guess yeah. we have to start with the bad news first. <laughs> oh my gosh,
1: yeah. <laughs> wow. What did you guys think of the Javert section? My my first thought was to be a little bit uh, confused that hmm. he's held up as a Napoleon at the beginning yeah. of this section.
2: It's... Uh, it- it used to be Jean Valjean, who was our kind of Napoleonic figure. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that it has switched here to Javert, although he Hugo does say that Napoleon had two attitudes, one with the arms crossed across the chest mm-hmm. and uh, one with his arms behind him. And this seems to be a different portrait of Napoleon, yeah. Napoleon the, the defeated. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, actually, I was talking with an old professor friend of ours, Dr. Klein. Uh, about this very scene a few days back. And the the way that Hugo puts it is, one of these two attitudes of Napoleon, Javert had never demonstrated before.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a
0: giant yeah. contrast in the hand. The, arms folded in front is a noble, just, uh, man-in-command posture. And right. in the back indicates one of two things. Either uh, humility, which is something that I get the sense Javert does not possess, Mm-hmm. Or despair, right? Defe- or
1: actually, yeah, I agree. But I would say, or a third thing, or imprisonment. Usually a, oh. a uh, convict is uh, chained with their hands oh, behind amazing. their back. That yes. is a
0: great idea. I love that. Yeah,
1: Which is pretty cool. I just thought of that, that as you were talking. That is really cool.
0: Well, I wonder what is imprisonment. If we follow that train of thought, what is it that, that he is imprisoned by? Is it, is it Valjean's um, grace compassion is that imprisoning him is it his own um, addiction to righteousness to the law that is imprisoning him what mm. is that, what kind of a prison is he in seems mm. to me that's what well the section is concerned with
1: I think you're right I think that's the question of the section and there are some obvious answers and then there's some digging to be done because the obvious one would be that he now is a fugitive from justice the way that Jean mm. Valjean was before and that's the way Hugo puts it on page 1316 He's a fugitive from his understanding of duty and justice and rightness. There was a there was a duty that he had to turn in Jean Valjean, this convict, and he did not do it for the first time in his life. He didn't just snap a salute and do what the law required. And so now he is at fault and he can't let let that go. But I think there's a deeper reading also on that same page that has to do with his sight of himself and his knowledge of himself. He's he's a little bit. There are two words used in the um, in the middle of the page there. He is troubled by his blindness and he's lost his transparency. Those two lines go together. And I have it underlined with a question mark next to it because those seem to be contradictory. Mm -hmm. If he's blind then something was he wasn't transparent before there was something and still is Mm -hmm. something in the way of sight of truth. Right. But he says at the same time, he lost his transparency as if before this moment, everything was perfectly clear and now something is in the way and that's new. What did you guys think about that? Mm.
2: Well, he had such a simple understanding of the world before it, Hugo emphasizes over and over again. And now He's bumped up into the unknown. There's mm-hmm. he. There's something that he doesn't understand about the world. Mm-hmm. And this has caused him to question everything. And so there's, on the one hand, the yeah. blinds, the obfuscation has been removed from his eyes. On the other hand, it has been created in his heart and mind. Yes. And now he is confused.
1: I think you're right. He says, um, is there something, something bars the way in his mind uh, to the direction that he should go in, he says something, what? Is there anything else in the world besides tribunals, sentences, police, and authority? And and the implication is there is something else and he's never seen mm-hmm. it before and now it's in his way. Now it's yep. real and present and blocking that transparent, perfect straight line view right. of the world as only just.
0: Right, on, on, yeah. on 1319, it says his ultimate anguish was the loss of all certainty. It uprooted. The code was no longer anything but a stump in his hand. He was dealing with scruples of an unknown species. Within mm-hmm. there was a revelation of feeling entirely distinct from the declarations of the law, which he's made his whole identity up until now. His mm-hmm. old standard hitherto. To retain his old virtue no longer sufficed. An entire order of unexpected facts rose and took control of him. An entire new world appeared to his soul favor accepted and returned, devotion, compassion, indulgence, acts of violence committed by pity on austerity, respect of persons, no more final condemnation, no more damnation, the possibility of a tear in the eye of the law, a mysterious justice according to God going counter to justice according to men. In the darkness, he could see a fearful rising of an unknown moral sun. He was horrified and blinded by it an owl compelled to an eagle's gaze. Maybe one of the passages in the whole novel so far, but it leads me to ask, I think it's a great expression of what you guys were just talking about. This, the idea that the absence of that the impulse of of the human spirit is to find and cling to something black and white, because in our, in our souls, we understand that we are adrift on a sea of chance and circumstance. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we, We kick out at that kind of confusion and darkness by erecting standards for ourselves. This kind of behavior will lead to this kind of result. And that's for Javert in every circumstance of his life until he's faced with, and and Hugo is clear, until he's faced with mercy, with a tear Mm -hmm. in the eye of the law. But what do we do with this? In the paragraph right before, a voice speaks to him and says, very well, give up your savior, then have just yeah. pilot's basin brought and wash your claws and i have written in the margin what who is the voice mm-hmm. is this the voice of god is this the voice of the devil because i i mean i think we can we can say that suicide is not an appropriate response to this
2: well yeah although it, i mean if you continue to make the alignments or the parallels to the the christ story we have the the convict sacred um uh-huh. which is he, that is something that he literally says he can't understand that a convict would be sacred but that was exactly what mm. christ was captured by the law but sacred um, and then we have his betrayer Uh, the man who would give him up and Javert chooses not to do that. But in the biblical story, that's Judas who does in fact commit suicide. Right. Yeah.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. My answer. I I love your question, Ian. Um, Given that Javert's answer to this whole situation is suicide and suicide is not in the book of God as a, an exhortation, right? (laughs) So you failed the law. This is what's for you. That's not what God says to his people. Um, javert uses the phrase that uh, he points out that he has an inner tribunal that there's uh there's a basically a mercy seat and a justice seat and the justice seat lives in him not outside of him he is Mm -hmm. pronouncing judgment on himself in a way that is counter to the law of god and i think that that is a profound distinction in in this beginning of the chapter that the law of man and the law of God are separate, that God is more than just like Jean Valjean discovered way back at the beginning of the novel. And Javert cannot let that be. So he wants to Mm -hmm. be God more than he wants to submit to the law of God. And I think that tension might be what drives him to suicide in the end. On page
2: 1322, he says uh, he is obliged to acknowledge this infallibility is not infallible. There can be an error in the dogma. All is not said when a code has been spoken. Right. Uh, and that is, I mean, there are multiple planes of that. I, in this section, I was struck by how much this has to do with the problems of the 19th century. And uh, it's, he is still talk on about the social structure and France. Um, and yet it begins to have theological implications. And yeah. even uh, even in a law... In a black and white law, all is not said when a code is spoken, which is really God is more than just. There are these these ultimates in the universe, justice um, and righteousness and law, and yet they don't represent
0: the fullness of reality.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. 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 On page. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Amy. Well, I just
0: think that's really well expressed. They don't represent this. The what did you call it? The total of reality or the, the sum of mm-hmm. fullness, fullness. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm thinking of the line of a couple pages before that where he says he was compelled to recognize the existence of kindness. This conflict had been kind, and he himself, wonderful to tell, had just been kind. Therefore, he had become depraved. I think it's a really interesting idea. Like In a world where justice is considered to express the fullness of reality, uh, mercy is depravity. Mercy is perfect right. and twisted. Is weakness mm-hmm. and weak.
1: perversity exactly yeah.
0: perverse to offer mercy because it declines to be just and, um, but but without that notion, you've no way of approaching God. There's no way to understand mm-hmm. the the intrusion of of divine love into the world. Right.
1: Well, and I think it's explained that he's made it this far without ever having this this revelation. Um, he's never thought of God one time in a world that is just justice. You don't need a God figure. All you need is the law of man. Right. And as long as you uphold it and never fail, you don't have cause to look up or look down. You only look straight ahead on that straight line. But there's this line on 1320 that I think is so beautiful. I'm just going to read it to you. He says, um, in granting me life in sparing me, what has he done? He being Jean Valjean, his duty? No, something more. And I, in sparing him in turn, what have I done? My duty? No, something more. So is there something more than duty? Here he was startled. His scale fell out of balance. One end slipped into the abyss. The other flew up into the sky. So you've got both a look up and a look down at the same time. And Javert felt no less dismay from the one that was above than from the one that was below. He was not in the least what is called a Voltairian or a philosopher or a skeptic. On the contrary, respectful by instincts toward the established church, he knew it only Mm. as an august fragment of the social whole. Mm. Order was his dogma and was enough for him. Since he had reached the age of a man and an official, he placed almost all his religion in the police. Being, and we employ the words here without the slightest irony and in their most serious sense, being, we have said, a spy, as other men are priests. He had a superior, Monsieur Guisquet, he had scarcely thought until today of that other superior, God. This new chief, God, he was feeling unawares, and he was perplexed by that.
0: Mm. Yeah, which I think doesn't that lead directly to the line where he talks about the only appropriate response to a superior who surprises you too much or what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, or, uh,
1: yeah, you too much. it goes like this. He says, "In presence of a superior who astonishes him too much, the inferior has no resource but resignation. But how to send his resignation mm. to God? There it
2: is. Ret- Return his ticket. Yes, right? it's
0: Yvonne. Yeah. It's Yvonne from from the Brothers K. It's it's the Inquisitor, yes. which is which means that that um, I don't know. I think it would be interesting to ask a room full of students. Right? Uh, where does Javert make the decision to cast himself off the bridge to, to commit suicide?" And you'd have a kid mm-hmm. that raised his hand and said, Well, when he jumps off the bridge, right?
1: Right. You definitely would have that kid. That's yeah. true,
0: though. He's already made the decision because the decision here is um, in response to this Godfather is right. astonishing. Do you submit? Do you worship? Right. Out of gratitude? Or do you resign? Return your. Mm. And he's already made the decision. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, that's shown in the plot by the fact that at the very beginning of this chapter, he's already at the most dangerous bridge, right. at the bridge in, yeah. in Paris on the sign. Where um, even
0: the best swimmers drown.
2: I feel like there's an important distinction to be made. It's easy to see Javert as like a secular, godless Frenchman, but I, he has confused the police with his religion. Um, it's uh, his god. He has a god figure in his life. It's just... It's just the social authority, and his duty, and so uh, later on he says, uh, "If facts did their duty, they would be content to be the proofs of the law. It is God who sends facts. So was anarchy about to descend from on high? Mm-hmm. So he is seeing a God who um, who is contradicting." The law that he has mistaken for God, yeah. and as a result, he he sees God as a figure of anarchy. He doesn't keep mm-hmm. to his own his own word,
0: right? Right, which which does leave us, unfortunately, with a Javert who doesn't have a heart, right? Or at the very least, now that he has been handed one by this experience, immediately rejects it.
1: He hands it back. Yeah. yeah.
0: Right there's a line about him um, discovering in his bronze heart, or in his in uh, his bronze breast, something like a heart, mm-hmm. and it just spooks him. Like there's nothing he, he can't he can't square that with his vision of reality.
2: But what do you do with the fact that before he uh, jumps off the bridge, he commits a like puts to paper a list of uh, suggestions for the improvement of the police, and they are all. Compassionate; uh, it, they all reflect his new understanding that the convict may not necessarily deserve the full extent of his suffering under the law. Hmm, that's interesting.
1: I like your reading better. I, I, um, admission to our to our listeners missed that, and what I felt was that this was Javert's last attempt to be exact and precise, and not omit a dot, and be resolute in his keeping of his duty. Yep. Here are the last things I can think of. And they're specific. They're splitting hairs. This is how clearly I see the law. And he hands mm. in his his last attempt and throws himself off a, a bridge.
2: That's certainly true. And I it's there. But you're right
1: about the content of each jot and tittle. There's compassion in each one. P- uh, prisoners are taking advantage of each other. This shouldn't be allowed. There's yep. a compassionate seed well, in that I one. You're right. And
0: maybe I'm, maybe I'm overreading here. But I wonder if... There's two things going on. I wonder if he is first of all um doing what Megan is saying, but secondly, is also trying to assert himself again in this new world that Jean Valjean is in, that God is in, and saying, see, look, me too, but I don't have to I don't have to overturn the law to be compassionate. I can be hmm. I can be compassionate and still be just. And so in that in that context, these last writings of his are proof that the God that is that is the tear in the eye of justice is actually uh an anarchist right because look if Javert can be both compassionate and just then how much more so should god be able to be if he is really if he is really god hmm. um so it's it's consistent then that he would go chuck himself off a bridge right behold i have proven it i've proven that the way i see the world is actually can actually work with the idea of compassion without doing violence to justice and so given a world where where kindness is depravity there's no reason to be here anymore
2: there's just a really beautiful description when he does jump off the bridge um yeah of the just the the imagery that's used here it says he he's leaning out and looking over the bridge everything was black he could make out nothing. He heard a frothing sound, but he did not see the river. At intervals in that giddy depth, a gleam appeared in dim serpentine contortions, the water having this ability in the most complete darkness of taking light, nobody knows where, and changing it into a snake. So the the stars, the famous stars, he can't see them anymore. The There's literally a cloud cover so that the stars have been blotted out. Uh, and yet this water picks up a light and it's reflecting uh, a natural light back at it, but it turns it into a snake, which I just feel like is a really great description of Javert's character that he, sure. he has, he has, we, we haven't been allowed to disrespect him or to um, he, he's not a villain, right? There yeah. is something very respectable about Javert as a character. And yet, he, there's something deeply twisted about the way that he's taking these good mm-hmm. things uh, and, and uh, implementing them for ill in his life. Yeah, I, I actually started um,
1: circling words in the passage just after uh, what you read, Emily, circling words that uh, led us to an atmosphere, um, whether positive or negative, in an attempt to figure out what calls him to jump off the bridge because it's, um, it's a little bit like that water that you just read about has a personality in this scene. And it's supposed, mm-hmm. to, it's supposed to represent immensity and a chasm that uh, if you're thinking of Javert walking that straight line and seeing suddenly up above and down below those two directions that you never thought of before, this water is the chasm down below. And it has a personality that's calling to him in a, in a tempting kind of way, kind of like the serpent in the garden. I think there's a reason that the snake image is there. But listen to the words that that all have an atmosphere to them in this section. The chill is hostile. The odor is insipid. The breath rising from the abyss is savage. The whispering is tragic. The vastness is dismal. The void is Mm -hmm. gloomy. And the scene is full of horror. All of those words are um, hellish. This is the hellscape calling to him. And he submits to it rather than submitting his will to the infinite up above him. That is just, this is a tragedy. It's his
2: response to the impossible. The the impossible, again, comes up when he looks down, he just sees an abyss. But all that you just said reminded me that we shouldn't forget that from the very beginning of this novel, the drowning man has represented the miserable, the miserable people. Uh, Jean Valjean experienced it. Um, there was that long passage at the beginning that described the the drowning masses of mm-hmm. the poor in France. And here someone actually chooses to enter that abyss and and drown himself in it. And but that does make Javert yeah. one of the miserable people.
1: It absolutely does. and And whenever I think of that scene of the miserable people at the dark, the darkest point and the lowest point in society, I always come back around to this with you guys. God is present in that darkest scene, and Hugo never lets us forget that even the man alone in the dark has someone with him who witnesses his darkness. And so, even hmm. here, I I just wonder where is God in this scene? <laughs> you know, uh, Hugo doesn't let us think that that any man is without Him, even at his darkest point. Where is God in well, this? Well, I
2: wonder. the The very, very last line of this chapter uh, talks about the witness to his to his suicide. It mm. says, uh, he, I sp- he sprang up and fell straight into the darkness. There was a dull splash and the night alone was admitted to the secret convulsions of that obscure form, which had disappeared under the water. Mm. The The night is witness to his suicide. So he is isolated and alone. And that is definitely emphasized, but I do think there's something interesting. He still pays attention that, to
1: the idea of witnessing.
2: Yeah. He still, Hugo still draws attention to the witnessing of the suffering.
1: Mm-hmm. Man. Yeah, I, I don't know. You could drive yourself crazy thinking of symbolism and imagery in this scene. Because just like um, with Javert in the sewers, there's, a, there's an under the water and a coming back up uh, mm-hmm. for every other character in the story. And Javert doesn't come back up. It's a death yeah. without a resurrection. Yep. Even though the, the way that he dies is underwater. It's, it's a baptismal image almost.
2: That reminds me of, and maybe this isn't connected, but in the next scene that we're about to discuss, when Marius thinks about his friends who are dead, he says that he felt like he had gone into the tomb and come back out, but all, everyone else had been left everyone there else in had the tomb. Left. Yeah. I don't really know what to do with that, except for except for that Hugo has led us to believe that the seeming death is not necessarily the final word. Mm.
1: I am glad. I'm glad that Javert didn't go back for Jean Valjean to set the scales right. That was his. He said there were two options. One was to go back and do his duty later, even though he'd failed for a moment, and the other was this. And I am glad he did this instead. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the
0: things is just wrapping up Javert's character. Um, he's hoisted on his own petard, right? Like there's there's a sense in which he has equated duty and justice his whole career. And now what he finds is that it would be unjust to go back and claim Beljon.
1: Yeah.
0: He now owes the man a debt. And and so his ultimate commitment is to justice, which means he must fail his duty. And I just I don't know. I think that's that is a chilling a chilling admonition to a really basic human instinct, um, yeah. which is to keep keep the scales balanced for your sake and for others. And uh, it's ultimately not possible.
2: Don't mistake yourself for the skills themselves. Right. You are not the skills. Right. Well, I was just thinking about how wonderfully staged this scene always is in the in the musical. I, in the production, the very first production that I saw before they changed the set, I forget what they do with, in the new set, but I just love the way that they Javert jumps and dangles in the middle of the stage, and the bridge rises up above him. there's There's the hanging man. It's so
0: good. <laughs> I had thought about um Javert as some sort of a, of a Judas figure. That's really interesting,
2: well, yeah, I want, like I don't know. That might be pressing it too hard. He definitely doesn't end up betraying betraying Jean Valjean, but in a sense, he has betrayed God. Yeah. He by choosing to return his ticket to send in his resignation, he, he has betrayed
0: the ultimate. Huh.
1: Wow. So he's a
2: hanging man
1: at the end. That's so interesting.
0: So what do you guys make of the long and happy and wonderful <laughs> passage that follows this?
2: It's I think it's such a great pairing, actually, because Javert encounters the impossible. And hands in his resignation, and now we have uh, the grandfather confronting the impossible restoration of his relationship with his grandson. Mm-hmm. And we get Basque, his servant, uh, who sees him. It says uh, Basque, who watched him through the half-open door, was certain he was praying. Hitherto, he had hardly believed in God. Yeah, there's a there's a return. Instead, it's the it's the other side of the coin.
1: Mm-hmm. So presented with the impossible this this old man chooses to submit himself to yeah. the higher power and to rejoice in giving up his, uh, his understanding of reality and just giving himself over to joy.
2: Yeah. And he gives everything that he has, material as well as
0: emotional mm-hmm. and, and spiritual. The I, I, I don't know how much in order we're going to go in this passage, because there's so many fun things to notice, but <laughs> I could not help but laugh out loud. At the scene when marius has has come to and has been mentally preparing himself for a renewed battle with his grandfather <laughs> over marian Cazette and and, <laughs> yeah. and it's his grandfather comes in and says you know you should really start eating veal we're going to get some red meat in your system because you can start recovering by eating uh by eating uh soul fried soul but to put the sick man back on his legs, it takes a good veal cutlet. And Marius then turns to him and says, this leads me to say something to you. I wish to marry. And the grandfather <laughs> makes so much fun of him. He basically says, <laughs> what a transition. Yeah, but halfway down that, he says, he literally says, you take the ball by the horns. Battle. Ah, that's good. I propose a cutlet and you answer, apropos, I wish to marry. <laughs> that's that's what, I what I call a, call a transition. transition. <laughs> It was oh. great. So but good. also
2: like I have definitely done that myself like when there's like something you're really concentrating on and, you know, <laughs> a hard conversation you know you have to have and someone comes to you and like and it's just a totally random conversation and you're like okay but this okay. <laughs> Oh, <okay. laughs>
1: <You're> like, <"Ruh." laughs> yeah oh man it was so good. You guys, the scene that follows, of course, Marius is delighted and surprised and selfish. All he can think about is that his desire is going to be fulfilled. He's not even thinking about his grandfather. But he does say, he says, father, he calls him father for the first yes. time since all of the 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 coming apart of their relationship. And watching the grandfather hear Marius accept him and love him back yeah. is so profound. Uh, this scene in particular, he says... Um, he took Marius's head and he hugged it in both arms against his old breast, and they both began to weep. That is one of the forms of supreme happiness. Mm-hmm. Father, exclaimed Marius. Ah, you love me then, said the old man. There was an ineffable moment. They choked and could not speak. Ugh. So worth it. I thought one of the most painful scenes in this book was watching the grandfather uh, miss Marius yep. and. Mm-hmm. Um, try to communicate with him and instead just make it worse and grieve over the brokenness of that relationship. And though we've just come from a scene where tragedy was the answer, I think this is a world that Hugo has built that is redemptive. And yeah. I, he doesn't let us wallow, not even for a second. Yeah. I'm so grateful for this reconciliation right on the heels of Javert tossing himself off a bridge.
0: Well, and it's so real too because he, one of the things he tries to do in Loving Marius is change his political opinions and he just yeah. and it's so funny. He can't do it. He get he, he tries to change his language about how he talks about revolutionaries and ah rah, rah, rah. and finally he just hurtles out of the room, finds <laughs> the script, grabs him by the scruff of his neck and says, But they did murder him though. I mean <laughs> <laughs> it just
2: I this is the Hugo that I have hoped has been lurking in the corner because mm-hmm. he spent so long. He had beef with France and with the social structure and the politics and he's had his peace. But he here in the voice of the grandfather, um, he says, The Bible says multiply. To save the people we need Jean d'arc, but to make the people we need Mother Gijonet, or mm. however you say that but the idea is (laughs) I tried to make it sound French. Um, He um, we've had the barricades. We've had the people sacrificing themselves for a cause, Mm -hmm. but uh, in the end you can't really save the people. Well, I mean, he says you save the people through Joan of Arc, but like that's not ultimately where the life of the people is. The life of the people is in the marriage and the family and in the relationships. And, Mm Uh, he allows these things to supersede
0: the the barricades. Yeah, I think the, so the distinction you're drawing, I really love it. The distinction you're drawing is between politics and culture. And both he and Marius mm-hmm. have been guilty uh, in a tumultuous era of equating the two. Culture is politics. And what he realizes at the end, and I love that it's put in the words of the very old rather than in the words of the very young, mm-hmm. what he realizes at the end is, nah, I'm not the same thing at all. Not the same thing at all. Mm. Hold whatever political opinion you want, but I am gonna fill up your new wife's life with all of the culture that I have inherited from this great Mm -hmm. nation of ours. And the nation can talk about itself however it wants. I think all 'all y'all straight-laced, you know, black and white bourgeois peasants are really silly. But Mm -hmm. never mind that, here's some satin, right? Like there's just this Mm. overcoming of political divide with with the the relational and with the beautiful and with the with the cultural right mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's, I love that. that is maybe the product of a long life well lived is an emphasis on creating culture and living in culture with your family um, that doesn't ignore politics maybe but doesn't prioritize it as highly as a you know twenty year old dissident
2: mm. it's very specifically material culture too. Uh, I loved when he was allowed to just let loose and speak the voice of the 18th century, the right. century before, uh, and he, was, he he hands over what, the wisdom that that century has to offer, which has Marius has not been willing to, to acknowledge. And he says, love is all very well, but it needs this with it. The useless is needed in happiness. <laughs> happiness is the only essential, but season it for me enormously with the superfluous. A little further down, he says, Dry happiness is like dry bread to eat, but never to dine. I wish for the superfluous, for the useless, for the extravagant. Mm. So he, um, the, uh, in, the, in the realm where the miserable people are having trouble getting food, the grandfather says, don't just have your dry bread. Like, we are here to feast. Like, humanity was meant to, to dine well and True. to enjoy the good things of life and to have the extravagant. Uh, we don't want just some kind of practical uh, dryness here, yeah. but, but an abundance. We were here for an abundance of life.
1: I love that that all that superfluity that you're talking about, the extravagance, is equated with love. Love is called Mm -hmm. superfluous. It's called extravagant. It's called a grace in that scene. Um, It's called a foolishness, but also a wisdom. I think um, all those things put together, Hugo is, is, uh, well, it's it's a bit of a gospel message, right? To love another person is to see the face of God. And without seeing the face of God, what are we even here for? Without loving your neighbor extravagantly with all that you are, what in the world are you doing here? I think um I don't know. What a what a beautiful it's, answer.
2: Yeah, it's the anarchy that Javert feared. Mm-hmm. Love is the anarchy. Right. And the and it's ultimately happiness, the essential thing.
0: And we are all very satisfied with the happy ending. And the happy ending is not only are Gazette and Marius together, but they're Filthy, ungodly, rich. We love that.
2: <laughs> I know. Oh my goodness! The poor aunt. Okay, not the poor aunt. I mean, I did that line where it says she was like just a fifty-seven-year-old girl who had never lived life. It was extremely tragic. But the scene where he, she thinks like, um, if they weren't going to have money from Cosette's side, she wasn't going to give them her inheritance. But now that they have money, she only give right it to them. do it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah yeah, I found it she says it was clear that she couldn't do anything but leave her fortune to these young people since they no longer needed it yeah
2: (laughs) this is petty Uh. Uh. but like it's not her fault I mean it's she has a she doesn't didn't have a great father right like the father was very hard on the daughter that married for love. And so she chose the Javert path, right? She chose doing the, her duty to her father instead of living. Um, but we have seen that at his heart, the grandfather is actually a symbol of, of abundant life. Mm. Uh, and she did not inherit that spirit from her father or see his <laughs> true heart in that way. Nope. Well, we end this section with
1: Marius turning from his wedded bliss. Well, he's not wedded yet, but he's about to be. And he That's turns lovely. from the, <laughs> the delight and the joy filling his present life and looks back at the man who gave him his life. He's looking for him everywhere and um, concerned that he can't thank this faceless man for giving him his life back. This is a scene that I liked Marius most. I think Marius Mm -hmm. is a bit of a poppycock. I do not like him very much. Um, (laughs) But in this scene where he actually remembers that he owes his life to someone and uh, envisions what that man must have experienced to save his life, he um, he says, he must have intervened like an archangel. He must have made his way for more than four miles through hideous subterranean galleries, Bent, stooping in the darkness, in the cloaca for more than four miles, monsieur, with a corpse on his back. And with what aim? With the single aim of saving that corpse, and that corpse was I. He said to himself, perhaps there is a glimmer of life still there. I'll risk my own life for that miserable spark. And he did not risk his own life once but twenty times, and each step was a danger. The proof is that on coming out of the sewer, he was arrested. Do you know, monsieur, that that man did all that? And of course, in this scene, Marius is speaking directly to Jean Valjean, right? Do you know that this man did all that? And he could be expecting a recompense. What was I, an insurgent? What was I, a defeated man? Oh, if Cosette's 600,000 francs were mine, they are yours, interrupted Jean Valjean. Well, I'd give them all to find that man.
0: Mm.
1: And that's where our section ends. I think that is so theatrical.
0: Ends by naming Valjean, not calling him Faust Levant, which is what he's been called for the whole chapter. But mm. names him... Oh, I didn't notice that. That's so good.
2: Self. Oh, man. I also There's a comparison, John, between him and Thénardier as the two disappearing men. Mm-hmm. Mm. And Thénardier has disappeared beneath the waters again, like Javert, without oh, yeah. even the ripple to, to show where he is. And here is Jean Valjean hiding, disappearing, but in plain sight.
0: I wonder what we're going to see from this.
2: Oh, man. I
1: just, I'm afraid for Jean Valjean. I think this next part's going to hurt a lot.
2: (laughs) Well, it's, uh, that makes me think that he, there, there's a danger of a descent into the waters, like Javert, like Mm -hmm. Thenardier, disappearing beneath the surface of the waters. And, and is someone going to come after him in the sewers like he came after Marius?
1: Oh, I like that. I do think um,
2: Jean Valjean's character is a little
1: bit like a cork. It's like bobbing underneath the water Mm -hmm. and up again and underneath the water and up again. And it's like continually a baptismal image, continually a death and resurrection. Mm -hmm. How many times Mm -hmm. have we seen Jean Valjean go down and struggle with something that he might not resurrect from and then come back up again triumphant? It's like the entire book. I mean, we're at page 1360, 1,360 pages of Jean Valjean bobbing under the surface of despair. (laughs) And I just think I... I'm on the edge of my seat. I can't wait to see how Hugo's going to wrap this
2: up. Agreed. Are those, okay, so like to step aside for one second from our beautiful, lovely comments, which I should just allow to finish this episode, (laughs) but I can't (laughs) help. But you mentioned how Marius is a poppycock, and I can't help but notice that he his his reflections on his friends lost at the barricade, oh, in which the, the musical idiot. is like the beautiful empty chairs, at empty tables, like oh, swelling yeah. climactic masterpiece. And in, in the book, it's like empty chairs at you know. Never mind. I have <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're
1: like, "What about your friends?" And he says something to the effect of, "They're dead." But I have Gazette. Moving on. <laughs> Yeah. The director of the musical was right every time. He's like, you know, I think we need to encourage a little humanity in Marius. (laughs) Let's give him some credit here.
0: Well, I think it's probably appropriate at this stage to ask the question, how do we feel the musical has done thus far? And I think my my verdict is it is a spectacular piece of literary interpretation.
2: Well, I don't know if you guys noticed, but I scheduled us a whole episode to just talk about the musical. Not that we haven't been this whole time. No, but I think that will be fun. (laughs)
1: That will be fun. I thought as we were reading the section um, about Javert, of course, all that's going through your mind if you've seen the musical is stars, right? You're singing that song in your mind. And I think it's interesting that the tone, like the musical, uh, like major chords of that song are triumphant sounding even mm. though at the end, like the final note of the song even is a major chord and it's triumphant, mm. like, like trumpets in heaven, even yeah. though he's falling, the bridge is rising. There's, there's so much vertical attention and mm. the, the music is resounding and happy sounding, even though he's, he's jumping off a bridge he's dying in that moment. It doesn't sound tragic. And I think there's something thematic in there.
2: He he loves the stars. He loves the light. He just has mistaken the nature of the light. He's just at a at a remove. You have to have sympathy for him.
1: Yeah, I think he he rejects the God of Mercy, but he sees him. And there's something um, Hugo, as an author, is validating the existence mm-hmm. of a God of Mercy. And there's something triumphant in that, even though Javert, the character, turns his face away. Mm-hmm.
2: And again, just to return to it one more time, I think it's interesting that Hugo leaves uh, like Courfeyrac Rock and Angel Ross and Marius' friends on the barricade in the tomb with Javert. Mm-hmm. They don't, at least in this so far, they do not have some kind of, of resurrection. It's Marius, the lover, Although... who, who does Although, if the musical is to be believed, by the well, end, there will be a heavenly just, barricade. Yes. And all of them will be singing
1: on it. <laughs> Do you hear the people, hear the people sing. Sing. <laughs> There will be. We're not to the end yet. <laughs> I really hope that's a Hugo idea. I hope that yeah. he really does put up a barricade at the end and say, by the way, Fontaine is on top.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Ian, for joining us from your travels. And uh, thanks to you all. This has been a Megan and Emily mess around. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Ian was like, I don't really feel like talking. And then he was like, actually, I've been in a college environment for two weeks. and I have lots of lots of academic ideas. (laughs) I'm
0: sorry. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are great. And all you listeners are the best. I'm so glad we get to do this show with you. I hope you'll come back and listen to more. And I suppose we'll see you next time around on How to Eat an Elephant.
2: Bon Appetit. Bon Appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading!